Hello, Second World Problemers. We're back. We took a little bit of a, a one-month break. We earned it, let's be honest. We're back with a whole new world that's uh, it's on the move. It's always moving. Some would say it's a moving castle. But uh, this week, I am a great and powerful fire demon. Hello, I am Morgan. Let's get lit. Nice. And I am the wizard Pendragon when I'm in Kingsbury, sorcerer Jenkins in Port Haven, the wizard Hal in Market Chipping, and Hal Jenkins when I'm in Wales. But like interdimensional Wales, like not quite our Wales. Not like normal Wales. Also, I've never been to Wales. I don't know. This could be Wales. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure it could be in some way. It's such a weird it spot is, to, it, to base like part of this. I feel like the setting... I think it's because we'll probably get into Diana Wynne-Jones is from Wales. I think she's Welsh. Yeah. I think. But also, yeah, it's quite, it's like, quite strange. This is because it's just like... I don't know. My experience with anime is that it's often set in Japan or well, China or the film. EU. And then this kind of is... This definitely has a bit more of a British Isles the kind of vibe. film is not set in Wales in any way, but it is sort of based off landscapes in France. Yeah, it looks very, um, yeah, that it's British, all, yeah, rolling French, hills, rolling hills, and, yeah, all that sort like of that, vibe. Yeah. Anyway, so the world that we're, oh, well, the first, the, the film slash novel we're doing this week is Howl's Moving Castle. I, th- I think it was pretty obvious, but yeah. also like maybe not obvious enough. So yeah. I'm glad you did clarify. I, well, I thought we usually start off by saying what we're doing and I didn't want to jump into the world without clarifying that first. No, but the world we're doing, um, it is called in the novel Ingri, um, or at least that's this country. There might be, but Ingri is where Howl's Moving Castle is based. Um, it is connected to a Wales that is like our world through a magic door in Howl's Castle. But it, obviously I'm not going to say it's, it is our Wales because our Wales, as far as I know, is not connected to Ingrid. I mean, yeah, but who knows? Maybe it is. I mean, to be fair, I've never, if Hal has a house in Wales, I've never been there and I haven't checked out his shed because I'm pretty sure the door, the connection is is the shed. So, like, maybe that's true. I've never been to Wales. How Wales know. is doing for tourist attractions, but they should get a Hal's house. They should actually. That'd be. I would go there. So yeah, fast. probably. I, I was just thinking. As long I'm like, as I, they, I do want to see Wales. It seems interesting, but I'd be definitely more keen if there was like a Hal's house. As long as they did like they, they were like, here's a quiet suburban house and here's a shed, and then you go into the shed and you get to go to like his castle. Yeah, there's like a. It's like an experience. Yeah, it's like. Think of Disneyland, but on like a much smaller scale yeah. in Wales about Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah, <laughs> it'd be so cool. Um, so some for some background. So the novel Howl's Moving Castle is by D- Diana Wynne-Jones. And it was first published in 1986, so it's a little bit old, but I love it. Um, it is about the eldest of three daughters, Sophie, and it's in the book. It's a great misfortune to be the eldest of three daughters, and those who are the eldest of three daughters are destined to, destined to fail mi- miserably should they try and seek their fate or fortune. Um, Sophie is resigned to her fate as a hat shop apprentice until she anchors a witch and is turned into an old woman. Her only chance of breaking the spell lies within the moving castle that wanders the hills, belonging to the heartless wizard Howe. Um, the animated movie of this novel came out in 2004, right before, what was it, Dark Knight, I think. Mm-hmm. One of the Batmans, because um, I was reading the trivia for the movie, and at the time Christian Bale was practicing his voice for Batman, and they use a bit of it in the movie. I think it may have been Batman Begins, because I feel like Batman Dark Begins. Knight was 2008, maybe, 2007, 2000, I don't know. I think it's 2007, so maybe Batman Begins. Yeah. Um, and it was produced by Studio Ghibli. 
Um, it is largely similar to the novel, but it has like a few major deviations. Like it's quite similar in ways and then quite different in others, but they blend them well enough together that they that it seems like the same story. There is a really good take on the internet that I read that the novel that the differences in the novel and the film can be explained by the idea that the novel is how Sophie tells the story and then the film version is how Hal tells the story, which I think is the fun way of looking at the differences in the adaptions. Yeah, because Hal is infinitely more edgelord and edgy. <laughs> well, it's more like, he, yeah, and also he's, he's um, has a, I feel like he gets given a greater importance in, like he's he's a bit more central in focus in the um, film than he is. In the, like in the novel, he obviously plays a big role but because it's from Sophie's point of view, you get a lot about like, oh, he's so shameless and he's such a flirt and oh, he's like, he, he just never does any work and all this stuff. And in the in the film, it's a little bit like that, but he's also like so clearly the hero. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, he must be so pretty. <laughs> but he's also a bit of a mess. Yes. Well, that's that's his reigning charm. I've, I really feel like if I was, if I was any character... I would be how like me and how have a a soul connection. He is like, in some ways, he is my aspiration. Even though he is a mess, like <laughs> he does everything for the aesthetic, and I love yeah, that. That's a vibe, and he is an aesthetic, and I love that. Yeah, I yeah I, I appreciate that. I do like as mentioned. I did always like really like Calcifer though. Calcifer is got great. a bit of sass. A great you know? character, um, great voice work as well. In the because obviously I I've watched both the dub and the sub. Um, and in the dub, just great voice acting, I would say, on most parts. Sophie annoys me a little bit. <laughs> Not the old Sophie, the young Sophie. I just think she sounds a bit strange. Luckily, you don't get a lot of her. No. Um, but Christian Bale and whoever's doing Calcifer, so good. So both the novel and the film, I, f- I feel like they're doing really captivating things, but they're doing them in different areas. So the novel has a really interesting premise, obviously, because like it's a moving castle and like there's witches and wizards, but not necessarily in the same way you get in a lot of young adult novels. Um, and it's got a lot of good callbacks to its own rules. I was like, here's the rules, and then it returns to them throughout. And like, so you're like, yes, I know that's the rule, but obviously, like, we're going to get to the point where that rule doesn't matter. So I'm excited for when we get there. Um, and it has lots of things to say about romance and growing up and finding a place in the world. So I just think it's a it's a great novel. Everyone should read it. It's just a good romping time. It's really rich and it's in its sense of place and backdrop. And I think the movie takes that and shows that visually. Um, it is a bit fuzzy on how things work, but it's not a hard fantasy novel. So magic isn't explained down to its elements like it's just not that sort of novel you're not going to get the so science it's, breakdown it's soft magic not it hard is magic. soft magic is that that's the two right soft and hard i well yeah generally if you're classifying things in fantasy or sci-fi and like one's technical and one's a whimsical walk in the garden you have hard for science and then soft for whimsy it's a whimsical it is a whimsical yeah novel. that is a good word to describe this this movie in general is whimsical whimsical um, so the film has really amazing visual design and the colour pan- palette is just enchanting, which it should be because it's about magic. I really struggled to provide recommendations that are e- even vaguely in the same area of the way this fantasy looks in the film and the way it feels in the novel and how poignant the novel is because they're just so impactful in their own specific element. Like the only thing 
I mean, I will recommend it, but the only thing like you can say about Studio Ghibli is like watch more Studio Ghibli if you want more of that. But otherwise, like then no one was really doing it like them, or at least uh, back well, then. I, I don't thinking, know if they're still doing it. We're just talking about it, and I'm like, can I imagine this by another? And there's not a lot of animation companies no. that are like big names. A lot of them are, like they'd probably be small independent ones mm. who could conceivably do it. But I'm not familiar with them, so I'm thinking like, could Disney or Pixar or someone do this? I'm like, no. No, it's, no it, it, it seems, wouldn't be the same. It seems like the perfect match would be like, yeah, this is done by Studio Ghibli. And they did it and it seems to work really well. Yeah. I don't know. I like it. I've never heard anyone who doesn't like it. Um, So we'll get there. I mean, we'll sort of get there, I guess, a little bit. I do have a little bit on that. There are three books in the series with Howl's Moving Castle, is, um, which is the first. Um, but they're separate stories and Hal and Sophie only return in the third book and play minor roles. So there is more of the world that is explored in the series, but in the actual contained novel of Howl's Moving Castle, I've never needed more. It just gives enough to be satisfying and for me to want to return to it just over and over again. Like I reread it all the time. It's one of my feel-good afternoon like cupcake reads. Like I just, I just want to read something that makes me feel good, that I enjoy, that I know I'm going to get to the end of and feel really good. And that's one of them. The other one is like The Grand Sophie by Georgette Hayes. So like I have like a couple that I just return to over and over again. When I don't want to commit to a new book or I've read something sad and I just want to perk yeah, myself you back You don't want to read a hard book. You want to read a soft book. Yeah, I wanna read, when I want to <laughs> read a soft book, this is one of them. Um, so I don't really need like extra content for this there is enough richness and detail within the book and the film to create a world that I want to visit time and time again even if I'm not seeing more of that world it's more about the experience the feel of it being immersed in like all the all the rich palettes and the, and the pastels and the magic and because of like the richness of the world and the fuzzy set of rules um, that the novel and then also the film are employing. I've never questioned any of its construction because I find that I find that having watched watched the film is like I really love the film. I watched the film first and then read the novel. Now I would say my favorite is the novel over the film because I find that the film makes a little bit less sense than the book. But I also know people who find both confusing and are not fans of either. And when I gave one of them the book to read, they returned it and were like. I still don't get it. And my, the other person was like, I'm not reading that book. I hate this movie. And I was like, okay, that's fair. But like, like, yeah, they don't really like it. It doesn't, the, I, I think the softness doesn't quite work for them. And yeah, yeah, so maybe it's owed to the fact that the rules are kind of fuzzy. You just sort of have to go with it. And you, I mean, yeah, it's not about that stuff. It's more about uh, Sophie's journey and, yeah. how, and her effect on how and how's effect on her. Yeah. It just so happens there's all this other shit. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of other stuff happening. Personally, for me, I find it all charming and imaginative and I just really like it. But it's not for everyone. So if, if soft, whimsical books or films are not your thing, that's fair. And you, may not, you probably won't like this as much. But I personally really enjoy it. So as we said, the land, the story set is called Ingri. And then there's Kingsbury, which is the capital city. There's, and um, Hal has multiple pseudonyms that he operates his business under, I, basically so that way he um, can hide from people. And I'm assuming also for tax purposes. Yeah, tax purposes and 
Because isn't there something to do with like the king? He's trying to avoid the king. Well, he basically, if he has three, it's harder for anyone to find him. Yeah. Because he doesn't want to be found by anyone. He doesn't. He doesn't want to be found by the king. He doesn't want to be found by the witch of the waste. He doesn't want to be approached by randos unless those randos are buying a spell from him. Because he's like a legitimate business owner at the yeah. same time. It's very strange. So Port Haven. So in Kingsbury, he operates as uh, Wizard Pendragon. Um, in Port Haven, which is a seaside town. He operates as Sorcerer Jenkins, um, Market Chipping, where Sophie lives. He's just known as Wizard Howe and he doesn't, he's not like he doesn't own a shop there. He just wanders like the hills and yeah. puffs smoke out of his castle and all the girls go like, oh, it's Wizard, he's Wizard Howe, he's going to eat my heart. Oh no. And then he can basically, so Market Chipping is sort of like, he can sort of go into town and not be noticed as yeah. much because no one really knows what he looks like in Market Chipping. There's the Wastes, which is where the Witch of the Waste lives, um, which is sort of like a desert. It's just a desert. It's we just, don't see it in the film, the but it's a desert. It's just not a fun place to live. No. Um, and then there's the Edge of the Waste, where Hal builds Sophia Garden in the book. And then that garden is then taken in the film to be to look like Star Lake, I think, which is just like a nice lake where Hal takes Sophie. So slightly different. Um, where they've placed those and then there's Wales where Hal is originally from but isn't present in the film but is in the book it's so dimensionally wild. connected to the door in Hal's castle see I feel like that would feel out of place in the movie That'd yeah there are some things where you're like well it makes sense that they didn't include this in the film but also like so they they included some things in the film where I'm like okay but that doesn't make that much more sense either so there's the eldest daughter rule, which we've already sort of talked about. So it's established in the first chapter of the novel that the eldest of three daughters is doomed to misfortune and fail- failure if she leaves home to seek her fortune. Um, Sophie, more than anyone else in the book, believes this. Um, however, this role is also immediately challenged by her and her three sisters because her stepmother makes the decision on which daughter will go where when they leave school because she can't afford to send them to school anymore. Um, Sophie is resigned to her place at the hat shop, but Letty and Martha, her two younger sisters, switch places despite the rule that says Martha will be the most successful because she's the youngest. But anyway, she still is, but she does it on her own terms. So, like, Martha takes Letty's place because she's meant, Letty's meant to be apprenticed to the bakery. Um, and Martha's supposed to go and look, go learn witchcraft from Mrs. Fairfax, a friend of her mother's. And they switch places. So, Letty goes to learn witchcraft and become a witch. And Martha goes to apprentice at the bakery. So, like, it's sort of like it's saying, like, you know, this rule doesn't really matter. Like, it it matters how you do it. Like, success is determined by you. Because, like, Martha's quite happy at at the bakery and this is what she wanted to do. And and Letty wanted to do witchcraft. So they're just like, let's do that. So, like, it's sort of immediately is like, but this rule obviously isn't going to hold up. But Sophie continually throughout the book is like, but I'm the eldest, so of course this happened to me. Classic eldest um, child syndrome. Yeah. Magic is not particularly defined in the novel, but it doesn't really have to be to still be present because it's not it's not super uh, important in a way. Like it, it's just like it's there, but it's not, it, it's not like they're going to magic school, you know? Um, so Hal instructs Michael, and this is like the most amount of rules you get in the novel for magic is Hal instructs Michael, his apprentice, that the shape of a spell tells its worker a lot, whether it's self-fulfilling or self-discovering or simple incantation or mixed action and speech, and that more difficult spells have at least one deliberate mistake or mystery in it to prevent accidents. 
Rather than having one way of doing magic, there is a mix of innate magical talent and then apprenticing to witches and wizards to learn specific spells. So you can apprentice to a witch or a wizard, but you can also just innately be magical and not not learn any magic but still be able to do it. Just do it. Um, so there's the presence of fire demons as well, Calcifer being the main one. So Sophie is told in the novel that demons do not understand good and evil, but they can be bribed into a contract provided the human offers them something valuable, something only humans have. This this prolongs the life of both human and demon, and the human gets the demon's magic power to add to his or her own. That's how it's defined in the novel. In the film, it's a bit more like... It seems like they have like different types of demons. Yeah. Like I remember, because um, I watched it yesterday, Ma- uh, Madame Solomon, another thing that the movie does that I'm like, okay, sure, says that the Witch of the Waste has a greed demon. In the novel, she just has a generic fire demon. Like the, the only demons that are mentioned in the novel are fire demons, but it seems like they have different types in the film. I don't know. And they don't really elaborate more on that. They just sort of leave it at what the novel gives you. In this, like, you know, the idea that the demon, that Calcifer is a falling star, and then he made a contract with Hell and became sort of like a fire demon. Yeah. That's sort of what the the film and the novel agree on, and then they just sort of leave it there. Just don't think about it too harder than yeah. that. Just, <laughs> yeah, that's all you need to know. Um, so in the novel and the film to a degree, but not as much, Sophie is magic. She's a witch, inherently a witch. So Sophie can charm and spell objects by talking to them. Specifically, she talks inanimate objects to life. So in the novel, she does this to the hat shop's hats at the beginning of the novel, her walking stick, um, and to some degree, the scarecrow, and also Hal's suit, because in the novel, she mends Hal's suit, and she talks to it, and she charms it, um, and she's just... She's talking to it and she's sewing it back together. And she's like, oh, this was just made to pull in the ladies. And then she wonders why. Like, she doesn't notice as much. She noticed that, like, some, like, he's, I think he's courting Letty at the time that Letty is suddenly more attracted to him or whatever. She's like, that's, you know, I guess he's won her over. That's just normal. But then, like, she goes and sees Hal's tutor. And Hal's tutor is like, this is really good magic. Even my trained eye could barely pick up. Like, it's, like, the magic that's been done into the scenes. And she's like, oh, shit, that was me. I did that. <laughs> I put the char- like the charm on it for him to charm the ladies. Um, and, like, in the hat shop, she says stuff like, you are ju- you're going to marry money. And then the person who buys the hat marries, like, the counter, the counter, whatever. Or um, you're you know, you're going to have a whirlwind romance or you're youthful or whatever. Sounds and like all cool those power. Yeah, all those hats then take on that disposition and lend them to the owner of the hat. So yeah, it's pretty cool. It also means that when she's cursed by the Witch of the Waste, her own beliefs about herself play into the spell. And you see this more easily in the film. Um, so in the novel she says, Don't worry, old thing, you look quite healthy, besides this is much more like you really are. So because she thinks she's because she, she sort of feels old. She's in, an old soul. Yeah, because she feels old and she feels sort of put upon. That be, that feeds into the spell and she can't break it because it's her own thing. And in the film you see it because she gets younger at times when she sort of accepts herself. And she, That was the thing I noticed. Because when we watched this, it was like kids and I yeah. didn't notice that dumb stuff. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this movie's fun. And then like now I'm watching it and I'm like, oh, it's really cool. There are moments where she briefly gets younger or yeah. she slowly... And it's like, oh, it's so... Great. Amazing. Yeah. It's so cool. And the way they do it sometimes just like that, like she's young and then Hal says something and it hits on something that she doesn't believe about herself and she's old again. Yeah. Um, I just think it's super cool. 
So now we get a bit more into the differences in adaption. There's a lot of things that I notice, because I love the book and I love the movie, that no one cares about and that's fine, but they also make sense for an adaption. Um, but there's some which are like super notable if, if you're familiar with both. The film does tend, which I enjoy, the film tends to take small details from the novel and then works them around the main storyline in different ways. So like, for instance, you know the dog that escorts Sophie in the film? The, yeah, yeah. That, the one that she thinks is how. Yeah, the one that she thinks is how. So in the novel, when um, Hal's tutor, Mrs. Pentsemon, dies... Uh, and he goes to her funeral. He does this is this whole scene. He dyes his hair black. He charms his suit black. He gets dressed up all in black, and then he turns himself into a dog to go in disguise. And that's sort of like they sort of like took that moment, but then warped it a little bit and put it into the film in a way that's slightly different. I really enjoyed that. There's also another character who's turned into a dog in in the novel. So it's like sort of like combining those two moments, um, and I really enjoyed that. I love that little dog. Because she's just like, it's Hal. And then he's yeah. just like, it's a movie. He's like, where are you going, Hal? And, like, and once you watch it, you're like, that's not Hal. It's just a dog. Um, so in the novel, Sophie is either a redhead or a strawberry, strawberry blonde. It's sort of, they describe it as red gold, which I would say you are either a redhead or you're a strawberry blonde. Um, what a red gold. What's, um, what's that? Rose gold. Rose gold. She has not rose. probably not that. Um, that in, that that implies a metallic. I don't think her hair is metallic. Um, her hair in the film is brown. I assume they did this to make her less interesting to look at initially. Where you're next to Hal and Hal's all all him, and then she's got the brown hair, and then at the end she has the silver hair, and she's like more interesting to look Hal's at. Hal's like my emotion has changed, so my hair color must change. <laughs> it's so good. Um, it also makes like the bit in the film. Because in when his hair changes to sort of that sort of pinky, orangey color, oh, first orange and then it softens to like pink and then it goes black in the film. In the novel, Sophie thinks when his hair changes to like that gingery color, oh, that looks sort of like my hair, like before. And then it, I think in both the novel and the film, he's like, "It's horrible. This is horrible." <laughs> it was just funny. So that's just like a fun thing to notice if you if you've seen both. Um, the black gateway, the black door, the black dial in the film, the gateway. So in the film that leads to supposedly Hal's like inner mind, that's one of the things that is less clear and I don't want to interrogate it too hard because I'm not sure where we'd end up. But it sort of leads to sort of like Hal's like inner, inner mind or inner psyche or unconscious or something like that. <laughs> Whereas in, in the novel, much more easily, it leads to Wales, <laughs> to his sister's house in Wales. One is more open-ended and very deep, and the other is Wales. Yeah, the other <laughs> is Wales. And, you know, per Wales, when they go there in the novel, it's raining. Classic it's just Wales. Wales. Um, and then, again, Sophie's magic is sort of left up to viewer discretion in the film. It's not really explained or highlighted in any way. But if you if you know that she's supposed to be magic, you see it more. The most I tend to notice on, like, a casual viewing, which is, like, when I'm doing my, my nails <laughs> while watching the film, is, like, the most obvious one to me is when she tells, like, when she's flown the plane into the castle's mouth and then it's crashed it there and they're trying to get it out, she's... They're like tugging at a rope to pull it out. 
and she can't get it to move. And then she yells at it to move, kicks it, and it starts up and flies out of out. Ah. And I was like, ah, so yeah, that I see that. It's the other instances are less obvious, but they are there. Um, the opening scene is quite different in the film from the novel. So Sophie only has one sister, and the man she blows off in the street isn't Hal. So in in the novel, the the person who comes up to her in the street and says, "Hey, let me buy you a drink," like but less creepily, that's Hal. Hal offers to buy her a drink, and uh. she says, "No, I'm going to the bakery or whatever," and walks off. Um, instead, in the nov in the film, Hal rescues Sophie from the guy who's doing that. It does make sense to change some of these things for brevity. And also if she and Hal are involved in the first scene, it makes the witch's involvement when she comes to the hat shop easier. Because in the novel, the witch of the waste comes to the hat shop because Percival, who we'll talk a bit more about later, but Percival's a guy in the in the novel. Percival didn't want to dob in Letty because I think there was something to do with either Prince Justin or something happened and the witch of the waste was after Letty. Percival, who's in love with Letty, didn't want to dob her in. So he said that, she had a hat shop in market chipping so the witch goes there and he didn't know that sophie would be there he didn't know she had sisters and then in this like whole exchange isn't even explained until like the later chapters of the novel so having sophie targeted because of like a stroll with how makes way more sense and it's so much, so much easier, easier and cleaner yeah. to do so like i get why they did that um obviously there's the addition of flying machines to the film none in the novel it's not that it's not that sort of society the plot of war is way more important to the film than it is in the novel. The most, so obviously, because you get the bombs and all that stuff. And I get that, but it is a bit weird. Like when you're watching it, you're like, this is a bit weird. There's like planes and then a, he's a giant bird. And he, stops, and he stops the bomb from hitting the hat shop. It's, it's, a, it's just it's strange to watch. Um, the most allusion to any war in the book is that at one point in one section, the king says that High Norland and Stranger are about to declare war because and because of that he needs his brother Prince Justin back because Prince Justin Justin is his best general. That's it, it's a sentence. So it's and like I I don't I really the things the film is saying about war and the terrible things that war does and how terrible war is. I don't have a problem with those. I think they're great things to say. I just think that the actual war is a strange plot in the film. I just think it's weird and pla- placed weirdly and it doesn't quite sit yeah, as like well is, with what, the rest of the film. What does it do? All it does is really show that Hal is trying to save normal He's people from to, the war. Yeah, trying to stop the war. He doesn't want to save civilian life. He wants yeah. to save civilian lives, stop the war. That's basically all you And it gives, it. it sort of gives like a, because they cut, because they, they really changed the plot around the war. It's like the biggest change is the removal of the Witch of the Waste as the villain in the film. The Witch of the Waste isn't really a villain. You notice she about when she gets her demon taken away, that's it. She's sidelined. She's out. Yeah, she's just kind of hanging out, being dopey. So like instead instead of her being the villain, they use the Warplat and Ma- Madame Solomon as the main conflict that affects Hal and Sophie next to breaking Hal's contract with Calcifer and Sophie gaining back her youth. In the novel, the Witch of the Waste is the villain or her fire demon is the villain. So there's not this thing about war it's Hal and Sophie doing their thing like you know sniping at each other Hal sending her to meet the king so that way he doesn't have to report 
Why does he have to go see the kid? That's oh, my, he has to like deliver stuff. For that's one stuff. of my favorite things about the movie is there's this constant thing about because he's playing multiple people yeah. and the king wants to. I want to meet with all the wizards. I want to meet this wizard yeah. and this wizard and like three of them are how. Yeah, and he's like, I can't show up and be like as different people. Yeah, like I one person. Yeah, I am like wizard Pendragon is sorcerer Jenkins. Yeah. It's like, I just love that whole thing. He's like, I can't, yeah. Like, and like, he also, I think the ki- the king knows Hal as yeah. well. So he's like, oh, God damn it. He's just <laughs> avoiding the king. Yeah. So like, and, and like the, you know, it's, it's about, so the novel is about like Hal and Sophie. He, he does send her to meet the king because he wants him to make stuff for him. And he's like, I really want to do that. I'm useless. Go tell him I'm useless. I want to do this. And then, like, they open up a flower shop together, but they're all having, like, there's all this, like, interpersonal drama happening at the same time because they have the dog who's Percival and then they have, and he's in love with Letty and Hal's courting Letty and Michael's courting Martha and Sophie's falling in love with Hal and Hal is also falling in love with Sophie and they're having this thing and they've had to go back to Wales and he's met a teacher there who Sophie thinks he's starting to fall for like normal, but he's not. Um, it's actually a fire. It's a fire demon. It's the witch's fire demon. And then, like, all this sort of stuff gets to the climax. They fight the witch of the witch's fire demon. They win. That's that's it. They fix the people who need to be fixed. We'll get to that. We still haven't got even to like who people are yet. And there's more characters in the novel than there are in the film. So like, there's no war. None of that. And like, Madame Sullivan Solomon is a mesh of two characters from the novel mrs pentsemon who is Hal's magic tutor from when he was young and ben a wizard solomon who is a character from the novel they've meshed her together and made her the villain instead of the witch of the waste as part of the war conflict it's a bit it's just a bit strange <laughs> to watch you're like i mean it makes it's it makes enough sense that you're like okay fine but like, like all the war stuff is like it's a lot, and it doesn't seem to match the whimsicalness of everything else. It is pretty dark, isn't it? Um, Hal is also shown to be much younger in the film when making the contract than he is in the novel. In the novel, he's like late twenties ish, like mid to late twenties, and he only made the contract five years ago, so it would have been like early twenties or like nineteen or something. I mean, it makes sense. If it's still five years, if Hal is 16 in the film. But that weirds me out. He do- No 16-year-old should look like that. Yeah, no, that's that's weird. So Hal is described in the book as a tall, young fellow in a flamboyant blue and silver suit with fair hair and glass green eyes with a long, angular face. Obviously, his hair changes a lot because that's something the movie is true to. Um, due to the fact that he uses cosmetic spells, like I said, his hair is also at times black. Uh, ginger and pinky blonde because he gets like instead of being like the crimson color they use in the film it's sort of like a pinky blonde and looks apparently looks quite nice with his crimson and gray suit or whatever sounds lovely yeah um his eyes change to a more natural green when his heart is returned at the end of the book as opposed to like the glass green sort of deadness a little bit he originally comes from wales before dimension hopping to ingry and setting up as sorcerer jenkins Calcifer in the novel is described as having a little blue face with a long and thin blue nose. Um, He has curly green flames for hair, purple flames for a mouth, two tufts of green flame for eyebrows and orange flames for eyes. He's often referred to as a demon. However, he does not believe he's evil. 
Originally, he was a star that Howe caught and saved by creating a contract with him. The contract, as I said, was made five years prior, and Calcifer says that neither of them knew what they were getting into. Um, these descriptions are, are from the book because you can see the movie and see what they look like. So I just don't feel the need to elaborate much yeah. on that. But like, if you've seen the movie, then you can listen to this and sort of compare how they're different. Michael is Howe's apprentice. He is called Markle. Markle. In the film, he is much younger in the film than he is in the book. In the book, he's old and he's about 16 or something. He's old enough to be courting Martha, um, Sophie's sister. No, he's 15. I wrote it down. Voiced by Josh Hutchison of yeah. Hunger Games fame. Mm, I did notice that. Um, there's Sophie, Letty, and Martha. So Sophie is described as having reddish gold hair and otherwise mainly described when she is old. Um, Letty is described as the prettiest of the three sisters and fair. Um, so Sophie is fearful but headstrong at the start of the book but grows into herself when she is cursed as she no longer feels she has much to lose. Huge character. The villain of the novel is the Witch of the Waste slash Miss Angorian. And this is where it gets a bit confusing <laughs> in the novel and why I can see why they didn't include it in the film. So Lily Angorian is an English teacher from Wales. It was a poem from one of her lessons that the Witch of the Waste uses to curse Howe. As with many women, Howe falls supposedly falls instantly in love with Miss Angorian, who becomes um, his next target of courting when Hal, Sophie and Michael visit Wales, Wales to retrieve a missing spell. Although it is implied that he knew she was connected to the Witch of the Waste already and wasn't actually in love with her at all, um, and Sophie was just projecting onto the situation. Classic Sophie. Um, because it's told from Sophie's point of view, you don't get as much of that, but like it is still there. It's just harder to read. Eventually, Miss Angorian arrives in the castle through the magic door, and then is, it is revealed after a trip to the Witch of the Wastes castle that Miss Angorian was a form of the witch's fire demon who had already mostly consumed the witch. So they defeat the witch and then they have to fight the fire demon and, and you know, all happens. But the Witch of the Waste therefore has like sort of, well, Miss Angorian as a form of the villain has a much bigger role um, in the novel. Um, Hal is something of a serial dater in the novel. <laughs> he isn't like... He's not that in the film. I mean, the, uh, you can see that he's charming um, in the film, but like he is a serial data in, in the novel. Um, there's wizard Solomon, who is, uh, like I said, meshed with Mrs. Pentsemon to make with uh, Madam Solomon in the film. So he's originally known as Ben Sullivan. Um, he is also a Welshman who found his way to Ingrid, apprenticed to a witch and became a royal wizard. Um, became royal wizard, sorry, not A. He's the. He is the And then the king wizard. tries to give it to Hal when Higa is missing. And Hal's like, nope, I don't, don't want, want that. So the king sends him after the Witch of the Waste and instead he starts a garden to try and bring the Waste back to life and therefore sort of encroach on her power base. He is captured by the witch and then bodily taken apart. Wow. Um, his skull ends up in Hal's castle, which Sophie then charms back to life. And his magic ends up in the scarecrow in his garden to continue to try and defeat the witch. Parts of his body end up in Percival, who falls in love with Letty. Wow. It's about to get a bit wilder. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you like quite, quite close to the end, like, Sophie spends most of the novel scared of the scarecrow and she doesn't want to let him into the castle. He doesn't, she doesn't like that he's following her. Turnip head in the um, film is much more benevolent and nice. Yeah. But in, in it's, it's sort of a scary scarecrow in, in the novel. Um, but he, like, absorbs the skull and then is able to talk. And he's like, I'm just a magical golem. It's fine. 
like I, I like thank you. I just like thank you for talking me back to life. Like I didn't have the strength, but now I can go after the witch. And thanks for like making me five times faster. She told him to like go five times faster, so that way he would miss the castle when he's hopping around. So he's like, thanks for all that. Um, I'm just been like I'm most of his magic. I'm just here and I'm trying to defeat the witch. Thanks. Like I'm gonna take that skull. Thanks for your help. <laughs> and there's Prince Justin. Um, he is in the film and he's the scarecrow. So that's the sort of part they took. Um, but in the novel, Prince Justin is also captured by the witch and taken apart. He is combined with parts from Wizard Solomon in the witch's castle, waiting for Hal's head to make the perfect man, according to the witch, oh, wow. and be the new king of Ingry and she'll be the queen. It's very <laughs> it's interesting. Um, the other parts also make up Percival. So Percival is a Frankenstein, like a man-sized Frankenstein of Wizard Solomon and Prince Justin. And at the end, Hal's like, I'll get you sorted out and back into your right bodies. It's fine. But Percival also falls in love with Letty. So there's an implication that Wizard Solomon will, is also in love with Letty at the end. But he's also cursed by the witch because the witch just keeps him around like the spare part body. Percival calls okay. him Gaston, keeps him around. And then when he lies to her about Sophie being like Letty being in the hat shop, she turns him into a dog. And then he hangs around as a dog. And he can sometimes turn back into a man, but either way, he's still this weird Frankenstein man. Wild. Yeah. So at the end of the novel, he how reincorporates the two into their own bodies. And it's all fine. Apparently with magic, it's totally cool but if you can take off a does head. Does Percival have... His body is made up of other people's bodies, so that means he doesn't exist, right? Yes. Well, so he's, he has, like, memories. He has... He, yes. To some degree. His body is made up of different people so he has memories from prince justin but he is mostly because i would say majority prince justin is the body in the witch's castle that's waiting for house head with some of um wizard solomon in it and then percival is mostly wizard solomon with some justin it's like percival has justin memories and that's how he knew about letty because prince justin went and saw letty for a finding spell whereas Wizard Solomon had never met her before, but he remembered her as Percival. It's like, yes, Percival, once he's... They'll have memories, I think, of per, of being Percival, but neither of them will truly be Percival That's going to be a wild time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then uh, he, the king says Justin is a brilliant general, and that's sort of what we get of him. He's only really at the end. And yeah, and it's just they mentioned so casually in the book that yeah, it's totally easy for me to just take off your head with magic and keep you alive. It's so fine. Um, it's the books in the film aren't set in a specific time period, but it but both sort of read and look like nineteenth century ish. Like overall, it just has sort of a, like obviously it has a whimsical fantasy vibe, but in the little details and particularly the de- design of the clothes in the film, they look sort of 1890s inspired. And the novel talks about carriages, which were available in that time period, and the way the hats are described and illustrated, and the amount of industry that slips, you know, slips into it, just sort of gives you a bit of a wobbly time period of that. Um, whereas Wales is set more in contemporary 1990s sort of vibes. I mean, the book was published in 1986, so maybe 1980s vibes, but, you know. Um, May Day is a big thing in the novel because it's how it starts. To a degree, it, it might you could pretend it's featured in the film because May Day is when Hal and Sophie first meet. 
In the novel, Hal asks Sophie to get a drink with him and she runs away. In the film, they run away together from the witch's men and fly across the rooftops. It could, but like watching the film again, I was like, oh yeah, generic. When I was like, watched it prior to having to think about all of the stuff for the podcast, I was just like, oh yeah, generic celebration. And I'm like, no, this is like a war celebration. It's not, it's probably not May Day. Yeah. But in the book, it's May Day. So May Day is May the 1st. Um, throughout the years, there have been many different events and festivities worldwide, most with the express express purpose of welcoming in a change of season. So the Celts of the British Isles believe May the 1st to be the most important day of the year with the festival of, when the Festival of Beltane was he- held. Uh, this May Day festival is thought to divide the year in half between the light and the dark. Symbolic fire was one of the main rituals of the festival, helping to celebrate the return of life and fertility to the world. When the Romans came to the British Isles, they brought with them their five-day celebration known as Floralia, uh, which is devoted to the worship of the goddess of flowers, Flora. Taking place between April 20 and May 2nd, the rituals of the celebration were eventually combined with Beltane because that's what they did. It's all about syncretism. Yep. Another popular tradition of May Day involves the Maypole, which you may have seen in many different... I'm familiar. If you've seen Midsummer Murders, you see it quite a lot. I don't know why. They seem to have a lot of May Day celebration-based episodes. I mean, they do have like 15 seasons, so that's probably why. It's like how every other show has a Christmas episode. Yeah. They have a May Day episode. <laughs> yeah. While the exact origins of the Maypole remain unknown, the annual tradition surrounding it can be traced back to medieval times and some are still celebrated today. Um, so villagers would enter the woods to find a Maypole that was set up for the day in small towns or sometimes permanently in larger cities. The day's fe- festivities involved merriment as people would dance around the pole clad with car- colourful streamers and ribbons. It's just a sort of celebration. Yay, flowers and such spring. A, such a weird Not celebration. Not spring though, for us it's autumn. Yeah. May. We're going into winter. We get all the boring shit yeah. at, the diff- at the wrong times. Yeah, our May, our May celebration would be like, oh, the dark is coming. <laughs> not, yay, light. We'd be see, like, oh, darkness see, and rain. It's not, it's not like May Day happy. It's May Day, May Day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. That's ours. Um, so there is like the society depicted in both the film, but less so in the film, but in the novel, is extremely mercantile. There's a lot of focus on trade. Like I said, Hal is a business owner of multiple business, all in the same trade, obviously, all in magic. But he has like three different businesses. Um, the society, so um, it's really taken up with the idea of work. It's like Sophie's stepmother can't afford to keep them all in house, so she gets them all a trade. Um, Martha, like Martha, goes to the bakery and Letty, Letty becomes a witch, and Sophie stays in the hat shop. When Sophie is taken in by Hal, she claims to be his cleaning lady and takes over household duties that have gone ignored and helps Michael with spells. Later in the novel, they open a flower shop in market shipping as a cover while Hal runs away from the Witch of the Waste. So it's like a lot of business, like a surprising amount of like, biz- like it's all like whimsical fantasy, but like, so many, like it's yeah. it's work. Like man's got to live. He's got a he's got a big moving castle. <laughs> and then, yeah, well, they do mention in the novel that like. Like, Michael hides money from Hal because as soon as Hal gets money, he spends it on, like, clothes and, like, cosmetics and stuff, <laughs> which is a vibe. Such a such a sad boy. <laughs> <laughs> but also it's like, I get it because in, in our world, Mecca exists. And, you know, sometimes you just got to buy stuff from Mecca. 
If Hal lived here, he would be like platinum tier Mecca person. Like he would be their best customer. He would exclusively shop at Mecca and JJ's. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) Probably. And obviously there's witches and wizards in this world, so... And they're trained in apprenticeships, like like any other trade. To become a witch or a wizard, you simply have to get an apprenticeship. Like it's just, I just love it. It's so, so everyone different. Everyone has the potential. That why wouldn't you? Yeah. So nah, that, that's not for me. Nah, magic <laughs> having magic, the power to do whatever I want. Magic? Nah. No. Well, I mean, I suppose you are like sort of, like I I think you do sort of work for the king and have to have to do what he tells you. But like, yeah, why would you not? Um. So it's not. F- it's not framed in any way in this idea that fantasy leans to as either magic as a wild, unstable thing or a wholly academic pursuit. Like, you don't go to university for magic in this, which I love. Like, I, I do love my magic university books. I'm not going to lie. I do. But I do also love that for this one, you just go and do an apprenticeship. You do a cert for in magic. But, like, why is the royalty not, like, part of their training is they learn magic? I, feel I think like it's that's- because it's a trade. Like, it's not high class. So it's looked down upon. Maybe, I mean, I don't know. Ew, magic. <laughs> Here come the oh, wizards. wizards. Disgusting. Well, I mean, the, I suppose the idea if you're noble, like you can afford to employ a wizard to do your magic for you and you get the most, best of both worlds. You don't have to study. It, it's it's a can... crazy take, but I love it. It's so good. A picture a world, right? Magic exists, but everyone hates it. <laughs> and only scum learn it. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say we think of our tradies as scum. We just think of no. them as, like, part of society. They do a necessary job. Yeah. But it might not they be know, a job they... that you aspire to do. Like, I don't necessarily want to become a builder. But I understand the need for there to be builders. Yeah. And if I need a builder, I will hire one. That's true. And so it's sort of like becoming a hairdresser or an electrician. Like, um, it's very specific knowledge, but it's not beyond the grasp of a normal person. But you can have innate magical talent. And if you do, you are more likely to go, obviously, be a witch or a wizard. But you can also just chill like Sophie. Like, she's never had any magical training and she's just, like, talking she's just stuff back to life. just bringing shit to life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not, like, inanimate objects, generally not people. So that's fine. It's not necromancy. Still, I think, I think that would be a big deal if you just, in your life, were bringing inanimate things to life. Probably an inconvenience, if not to you, to those around you. <laughs> it's not like... It depends. Like, yes, to she can talk things to life, but she also just sort of imbues them with, like, what she talks to them about. So, like, if she calls her, like, yes, she can make her walking stick sort of float in the air and hit someone if she says, no, go back, attack, attack, whatever. But she can also just say, you're a sturdy, good walking stick. And you know what? It is. So. And it never breaks. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's not. It's not. it's not on the level of, like, you know, bringing dead people back to life or anything like that. It's not necromancy. It's just like chill to some degree. But yeah, I just love that it's a trade. It makes me so happy. Yeah, I would apprentice in magic. Yeah, me too. Like that. Like, hell yeah. I mean, I would absolutely turn out like how and be like, well, I'll open a shop and I'll help normal people. But like, if the king comes calling, I'm not here. I don't want to talk to the king. Yeah, I don't want to make weapons for him. Or... I want to have to go to court. Terrible. Court's a bad place. <laughs> so many people there. Yeah. Um, so Hal has his own sort of legend within the novel, not in the film, because obviously he's not, he's, he doesn't have that he's serial, the DL. he doesn't have that serial dating persona that he, like they still refer to him as Heartless Hal, which makes sense. But like, there are multiple reasons for that in the, in the novel. So like, 
because like it is rumored in the novel that he goes around eating or collecting the hearts and souls of young women. This is because he courts lots of women. He, he falls in love with them, and as soon as they love him back, he falls out of love with them and he dumps them. And then all like if they have aunts or mothers, they come after him and they tell him he's horrible and heartless. And then when Hal was hiding from someone, he said, Michael, please go and blacken my name. And Michael said, oh, Hal, he eats the hearts of young women. <laughs> and then he starts to get a legend. It's that simple. Yeah. He's basically, yeah, he's just a serial dater. He charms young women until they fall in love with him and then he dumps them. Um, Sophie is depicted in the novel as his true match for being able to put up with all his drama and also for restoring his heart to him which obviously he doesn't have because he gave it to Calcifer. So the name is also actually literal as well as being like something that has to do with the fact that he serial dates people. It is because of this separation of heart from body that house that he does serial date to see if there's someone who who he won't lose interest in after they fall in love with him because of his missing heart. So he thinks I'll never actually be able to love properly because I gave my heart away. So he just keeps trying though. He keeps being like, maybe this time I'll still love them. Turns out he loves Sophie, so it's fine. And while Sophie is still trying to figure out the contract, Calcifer is constantly dropping hits about Hal's heart. Um, at one point, Hal is also referred to as Bluebeard early on in the story. Bluebeard is a villain in European folktale made famous by Charles Perrault in his tale Barb Blue. Sorry, he's French and I'm not. So I'm, I'm... I assume Barb Blue translates something to Bluebeard. Bluebeard. Exactly yeah. that, Bluebeard. <laughs> According to the story, Bluebeard married several women, one after the other, and murdered each of them. He threw their bodies in a special room inside his castle. He then married again and gave his new bride the keys to the castle, telling her that she might go anywhere in the castle except for that one room. While Bluebeard was away, however, the wife, the wife's curiosity gets the better of her and she opens the door to the forbidden room. There she disco- discovers the remains of Bluebeard's previous wives, when Bluebeard returns, he realizes that his wife had found out his secret and t- tells her she must prepare to die. Um, the story has then several different endings. In one version, the young wife killed Bluebeard with his own sword. In another, his brothers come to rescue to her rescue and kill him. In another, um, by Angela Carter, which she does like this cool. She's got this cool anthology of written fan- like feminist fairy tales called the Bloody Chamber. Um, it's her mother who comes to save her. It is also sort of like a darker retelling of the Cupid and Psyche myth from Greek mythology, which is she can't look at him or like their marriage is over, sort of like um, she can't see him at night when he comes to bed with her. And then she spills candle wax on him. And then, yeah, you know, it's just Aphrodite meeting a bitch as per (laughs) usual. So something about how sort of strikes me in both the novel and the film, and it's this concept of glamour and I, I don't know if you know much about this you probably weren't reading the books that would spark this for you in any way but glamour is a common word for the magic of the fae that is most often invoked in YA novels of a certain kind i.e holly black i don't know if you're familiar with holly black probably not but you might have heard of so. her so glamour is a particular type of magic that belongs to the fae and the fae are fairies but a very specific concept of fairies that evolved from Celtic roots with the um, Tua de Danon and the Si, or She. I have a couple of different pronunciations because people don't seem to agree. When I was doing my Myths and Legends of the Middle Ages and we're doing um, Irish mythology, I learned it as Tutha, Tutha de Danon, and then Seath. But some people say She, and some people say Tua. So 
It is what it is. I'm trying my best. Um, so they were a race of deities inhabiting Ireland before the arrival of the Milesians, which are the ancestors of our normal Irish people now. They were said to have been skilled in magic and other areas of deific influence, so like seasonal gods and things like that. Um, they were thought to have disappeared into the hills and burial mounds when overcome by the Milesians. They then dwelled in the other world, or Tyr Andaman. Sorry, that's a bad pronunciation, but that's what you get. I <laughs> know uh, it's bad. Which is sort of the the land of youth and beauty, sort of like Avalon that you get in Arthurian myths. So everlasting youth and beauty. And it can be accessed by humans through travel across the sea, entering caves or entering burial mounds. Eventually, they then changed from deities in pagan worship to the fairies of folklore. Fairies then underwent many changes in Western and specifically European tradition with Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream and Ang Andrew Lang's Book of Theories, Fairies. Notably, Andrew Lang gave them wings, which they didn't have before. That is his main addition. Sick upgrade. Shakespearean fairies have... Um, I did have to do an assignment on this, so I have all the information here. <laughs> so I'm just going to tell you what I talked about in the assignment. But like Shakespeare added specific elements to his own fairies like he was taking stuff from folklore and from a lot of different sources of folklore and then adding his own stuff into it so um characteristics of shakespearean characteristics of shakespearean fairies are they form a community under a king and queen they are exceedingly small they move with extreme swiftness swiftness they are elemental airy spirits their brawls incense the wind and moon and cause tempests they take their share in life of nature, live on fruit, deck their cowslips with dewdrops, war with noxious in insects and reptiles, and overcast the sky with fog. So they are elemental spirits. Um, they dance in orbs upon the green. They sing hymns and har carols to the moon. They are invisible and apparently immortal. They come forth mainly at night. They fall in love with mortals. They steal babies and leave changelings. They come to blessed, blessed the bride bed and fertility stuff. Another scholar sort of says about fairy the like the change in fairies is that as long as fairies were regarded as wicked beings they survived as powerful incredible entities but when they became summer sprites they lost their hold upon the fear of like people's fear and shakespeare was a part of that like, he made them small and he made them like he made them small and swift and not necessarily not malevolent but like more benevolent yeah. benevolent um, and less their their brawls are with elemental things as opposed to humans. So as long as they occupied dark and mysterious portions of the earth and pursued careers of bewitchment and child stealing as adult and substantial beings, they were characters to be reckoned with. So like the upgrades they get from Andrew Lang and Shakespeare are not they diminish them in both Try size. And take away their power. Diminish them in both size and then character as well, because while they were like adult deities or like full-sized fairies inhabiting this land of youth but could also like practice magic and do all this stuff they were more they were more uh powerful in people's minds than they are as like little things so the she are characterized um by the term heroic fairies so that's like this is where like the 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 shift is so like you have like a common conception of fairies which comes from andrew lang and shakespeare that riffs off the original folklore and then you have the concept of heroic fairies which are sort of based in the original more than those ones over there um so that's probably due to their involvement in lots of heroic sagas um in the cycles of irish myth and folklore 
Um, and they're characterized as possess- possessing human or more than human height. So they're adult, um, even if they are eternally young. Um, they have aristocratic status among fairy people and they pursue aristocratic leisures, leisures such as hunting, hawking and feasting. They can transform, move invisibly, turn themselves and others into birds and animals and retain an association with animals and natural features. They're ageless, undying, appearing as opponents and protectors of mortal heroes. They can create glamour and shapeshift and the passions of time is disturbed for mortals when spending time with them. We'll get to like why why I'm talking about this, but can you sort of see in like um, they can transform, move invisibly, turn themselves into birds and animals? Where we're sort of going with this and form Wales? of magic? And Isn't Wales that far is... removed from Ireland? No, it ha- it ha- shares Celtic roots. Yeah, it has Celtic roots. So glamour specifically can make curious onlookers see what they wish that person to see, or not see what they do not wish the person to see. Um, it can also hide the true whereabouts of a fairy. However, fae are often depicted using this ability to modify their appearance with glamour, i.e. eye colour, hair colour, and shape-shifting to appear as animals or other creatures. Because of the versatility of this conception of magic, it also blends into other conception of folklore beings with persuasive or shape-shifting powers like vampires. Yeah, that was my... I was going to say, I'm like, I'm familiar with gl- like vampires being like linked they with glamour. They have the thrall, yeah. Yeah. Um, although Hal is neither of these, the magic he uses to maintain his appearance in both the book and the film does appear a lot like r- glamour in the way it's presented. And also so does his magic. It seems more like fairy magic than it does like like, like any other sort of magic, magic conception. Yeah. yeah, Like magic system that I'm familiar with. But like it's just the fact that, you know, he has the, the he has the cosmetics and he shapeshifts into the animals in the film and, and in the book. Um, and it's sort of like it, it is this sort of like a veneer of fairy magic is sort of like an inspiration of fairy magic like it's not like this is a representation of that like holly black does but it's like inspired by so i just i noticed that i've always noticed that in like the book and the film that it has this sort of whimsical fairiness to it i can see it that makes sense but like not like a little not the little fairiness to it the like proper adult fairy the fae the yeah the fae but also like um the deities they came from, like, you know, Kernanos, the horned god who was, like, you know, fertility and the underworld and, like, part of the wild hunt, stuff like that. I mean, I don't remember if he is part of the wild hunt, but I did do a an assignment on Kernanos. And he is, like, you know, he, he does represent fertility and, like, was he, stuff like that. There was a movie we used to watch and he was, like, the king. And they were, he was like, I, f- I forget what the movie was. It was if, super weird. If you can't tell me the movie, I don't think I can it confirm It was super weird, but it was like a person and then they'd go visit the fairy. It might have been a TV show. And then they had to go, like, then they'd go visit the fairy king and queen. Like the start of that. It was super weird. Oh, jeez. I, I have like a vivid We've picture. We've watched in my... so many. F- yeah. I'm not going to lie. We watched so many fairy movies as kids. I, I just have a bit. And I'm like, I don't remember what this it is from. It certainly wasn't Labyrinth. It was. It, but it, Goblin f- King. See, I feel like it was Labyrinth. It was like our, because we went, we didn't watch Labyrinth, but I feel like it was like our Labyrinth. No, we watched Labyrinth with David Bowie. Yeah. But like, we watched this more. Like this was like. Was it? The Black Cauldron. I know we used to watch that. Nah, I'll f- I'll find it one day. Yeah, please leave. tell me, and I want to know because I want to know if yeah, if I if I look at it and I'll see stuff that I hadn't thought about before. So stars obviously play a big role in both the novel and the film because Calcifer is a falling star, and he's caught by Hal, and then he makes a contract, and then he returns as a star at the end. 
Stars in the novel are described as made up of light, lighting up the area around it in white with big anxious eyes and a small pointed face. And I, I love that. I also feel like I have big anxious eyes and a small pointed face. They are very anxious as well. They're like, like they try, her and Michael go to try and catch one and, and they're like, they're like, no, we're trying to save you. And they're like, no, I'm supposed to die. And it's like, <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Okay. Um, so most understanding, understand our understanding of the constellations and the stories behind them in Western cultures come from the ancient Greeks and their mythology where many heroes, demigods and people um, part of any sort of poignant myths are raised as stars as a form of immortality and the shape of their stories are reflected in their constellations which basically just means people have been looking up and telling stories about the lights in the sky for a very long time. Some cultures believe that it is rude to point at stars this is because stars have been and in some places still are considered gods and so to point at them is highly impolite. Pointing at a god could bring bad luck upon you or your family, and in some cultures it could even mean that you're going to die. Shooting stars, also sometimes known as fallen stars, also have a lot of superstition about them. So shooting stars are obviously associated with wishes, as as most, like, that's what I know. So if you're worried about money, all you need to do apparently is stand outside on a starry night, and if you can say money three times before the shooting star disappears, then your financial worries will be over. And I'd really like to try that sometime just to find <laughs> out if it's real, because I could use some money. Who can't? Um, if you're struggling with acne, then simply put a cloth or rag over your spots as a star streaks over the across the sky and they will be gone. Not something I could test, but I, I sure hope someone will. Don't use your hand, though, as the blemishes will simply transfer onto it. Um, just seeing a, like a falling star is considered to be good luck. Some cultures believe that fallen souls... Um, no. Some cultures believe that falling stars represent souls that have been released from purgatory, allowing them to finally go up to heaven and be at peace. In other cultures, a shooting star is the soul of a new baby coming to earth to be born. Cute. Another superstition is that if the star is falling on your right, then it means good luck. If it, if it is on your left, it means misfortune. If you are quick, you might be able to move so that it is on your right side before it disappears. I don't like that one. <laughs> trying, to, trying to trick a star. I mean, I'd love to, I mean, that sounds cool. I'd love to try and trick a star, but I don't like the idea that if it happens to be on my left, I, it's bad luck for me. Um, shooting stars are also lucky for anyone traveling. If you see a shooting star whilst on a trip, the voyage will be a sure success. Uh, stationary stars are also very present in folklore, particularly, um, so when superstition in England is that the first star that shines in the sky each night is magic. So making a wish on this star is said to be sure to bring your heart's desire. This wish can be done on its own or with a special rhyme, starlight, star bright, the first star I see tonight, or the other variation, I wish I may, I wish I might on the first star I see tonight. Farmers have used the stars to predict the weather for hundreds of years. One superstition says that if the evening star is low in the sky, then there will be a poor harvest. And seeing the dog star serious means that a drought is on its way. If the beehive star cluster in Cancer is not visible, even on a clear night, then it means rain is on the way. Like farmers, fishermen and sea captains also have their own star superstitions. By watching the way a shooting star travels, sailors can predict which way the wind will blow. The North Star has always been the most powerful navigating tool in history in the Northern hem Hemisphere. Allows sailors to be able to calculate latitude and the correct course for their destination. 
The North Star has become associated with luck because if you did glints, it meant they were on their way home. More recently, seafarers have been known to get tattoos of the North Star to keep luck with them at all, at all times. The stars can also be used together with the moon to um, see whether it will rain soon. Superstition dictates that the pattern in the stars around the moon can help predict the weather. So one ring around the moon with a single star inside means that there will be a clear weather ahead. If there is more than one star in the ring, then the number of stars indicates the number of rainy days that will follow in the week. Different cultures then have different variations on this. The number of stars in the ring varies in the meaning. Sometimes it is the number of days of rain. Sometimes it means that there'll be rain in that number of days or even that number of hours. Counting the stars might seem like a good idea, but it is also considered to be extremely bad luck, apparently. Learned that. Don't count stars. Legend states that if you try and count the stars, you will die before you reach 100. Oh, wow. According to folklore, only an unmarried person who is looking for love is allowed to count the stars. However, they are only allowed to count a maximum of seven stars on seven consecutive nights. Once this is done, the first person of your preferred sex that you shake hands with will be the person you marry. I love that. It's so random. Uh, if you're uh, at home and uh, single, give that a try. Let us know how it yeah, goes. Yeah, let us know. Seven, maximum of seven stars on seven consecutive nights. It's so weird. Like it's not like it's not like it has to be seven. It's like up to seven. Up to seven. You can just count on one. On seven if nights. <laughs> yeah. And is that like you can count like you like do you have to like you can count up to seven across like you do one or you skip a day? Like it's weird. I don't know. I assume that you're allowed to count up to seven each night for seven days. This is why. And I mean, then shake someone's why hand. It's just easier just to get Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I might like this version better. <laughs> You might be, you might meet less creeps if you just try and, count the, <laughs> try and count the stars. <laughs> so scarecrows obviously feature in the book and the film with Turnip Head and what is just known as the Scarecrow in the book. Um, so scarecrows have been around since the ancient world, used by farmers to ward off birds from fields in order to keep the crop before it is harvest, harvested. The earliest signs of scarecrows being used actually comes again from ancient Greece, as far as I know. Maybe there were some earlier as well. Aphrodite had a son named Priapus, god of fertility and horticulture. I don't recommend you look up a statue of him because I know about Priapus. He was considered well, to be horribly ugly and it was discovered that birds tended to avoid any fields in which Priapus had been in myth. Therefore, wooden statues of Priapus were erected in the field in order to keep birds at bay. I think, like, I love the like the idea of like scarecrows scaring things off, but the fact that it's based on someone is like the big, like, so mean. It's like, well, he's oh, supposed this to thing be is like based in on this. Myth, Priapus was supposed to be ugly, and I'm pretty sure he's also supposed to ha have an erect penis. Pretty sure that's him. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong. See, I was like, I know Priapus is. I know this story. <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the opposite of what you said, and I'm gonna tell everyone just Google Priapus and click on images. Um. So yeah, statues statues of that were placed in fields to frighten away crows. What is frightening? <laughs> Who knows? Who can really say exactly what part the scarecrows found more frightening? <laughs> Terrifying. Um. <laughs> However, the ancient Greeks were not the only ones to use a scarecrow in pre. Stop laughing. I, I, I it's have not to stop looking. <laughs> it's not that funny, Morgan. Think of that. He's already excessively ugly. He doesn't need even, your laughter. I didn't even look at his face. <laughs> I don't know what he looked like. 
<laughs> he doesn't need your laughter. <laughs> anyway, in pre-feudal Japan, scarecrows of different styles littered the rice fields. The most popular of the scarecrows used, however, was called the Kakashi. These scarecrows were thrown together using old dirty rags, bells, and sticks, and were mounted on a pole before being lit on fire. Due to the smoke and the smell, apparently Kakashi literally translates to something smelly or stinky, the birds would then stay away. And the Kakashi were actually based off a Japanese deity named Kebiko? Kebiko? Sure. Sure, we'll go with that who was a god of agriculture and wisdom. He couldn't walk, but he knew everything and his likeness was mimicked in the creation of the Kakashi. So uh, the Kojiki, or Record of Ancient Matters, has the earliest reference to the to uh, Kabiko in the myth of Okin, Okinushi, or the Great Landmaster. Um, so when Okinushi was at Cape Miho in Izumo, Izumo, a small, cami a small cami arrived in a boat. Nobody knew his name, but a toad suggested asking Kabuko, who revealed the god was a scion of the goddess Kami Musubi named Sukuna Bikona. The toad then spoke, saying, As for this, the crumbling prince will surely know it. Thereupon, the deity master of the great land summoned and asked the crumbling prince, who replied, saying, This is the little prince, the renowned deity, the august child of the deity-producing wondrous deity, so the deity here called the Crumbling Prince who revealed the Little Prince, the renowned deity, is what is now called the Scarecrow in the Mountain Fields. This deity, though his legs do not work, is a deity who knows everything in the Empire. Um, I don't have a book on Japanese mythology, so I don't have anything more than that to share about that particular type of Scarecrow or the myth it came from. But it was interesting. Lots of deities in those sentences, but basically a guy goes to ask the guy in the field who can't move who is the scarecrow about something because he knows everything even though he's stuck in a field all right been there yeah well, who hasn't been stuck in a field but knowing everything <laughs> in the world in europe during the middle ages small children would run around the fields and clap blocks of wood together in order to scare away the birds these children were called crow scarers and then because of the plague they all died and they had to put up sticks instead um, but no matter their cultural roots, scarecrows world worldwide were conceived of to perform a specific task to frighten birds, to be sure. But certainly in horror genres, now to frighten everyone. Um, scarecrows may also be connected to various conceptions of harvest spirits made or contained within straw, such as the Feldgeister. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. I just think it's a great word in Germanic folklore. So the Feldgeister spirit is a spirit of the land um, and is one that features prominently in harvest traditions throughout Europe. It assumes familiar Germanic and Indo-European Indo forms such as wolves, bears, goats, and dogs. Additionally, a Feldgeister may take the guise of a feline or hoofed animal. Traditionally, the Feldgeister is considered to be a spirit captured in the last harvest, in last harvest of grain, which resides with in a, within the inside of a stalk. So like the last stalk of the harvest or something contains the spirit of the Feldgeister. These last remnants of the harvest are then turned into a corn doll which contain the spirit until it is time to release it, usually through a rite involving burning the doll when winter has passed and the people once again return to the season of planting. As it is said to bring about bad fortune for a person to come in direct contact with the Feldgeister, the corn doll is carefully kept and stored in the hearth and home until it is time for spring rites to take place. They can also mark 
a farmer's land to trespassers and function as a keep out signal, which is far more practical but less interesting. <laughs> in the Howl's Moving Castle novel, the Scarecrow is a magical golem created by Wizard Sullen's magic, along with his and along with this skull is said by the Scarecrow to be, Between us, we are the best parts of him. Golems are part of Jewish a Jewish folklore tradition that has been somewhat adopted into fantasy genres. Traditionally, they are made of clay. But I don't really want to talk more about the golem without knowing sort of more about the Jewish tradition it comes from. Because if I was going to do that, I'd want to do it right. Yeah. Um, we've already talked so much research. about other stuff like scarecrows and stars. So we'll keep it light and whimsical. I'm sure like, they'll come back up again at some yeah, point. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, light and whimsical like, like the book and the film itself. Um, so now we've got to our philosophy and worldview. I don't have much for this section. I would like there one of the themes that seems to be in both the book and the film is what I've called surrender to the force. Yeah, all right, Qui Gon. <laughs> or accept the things you can't change. Like Sophie's so chill about being old because she's like, well, I'm cursed. It is the way it is. I will keep going and I'll try and get rid of the spell. But like also like. This is this, my life this now. This is it. That's I'm the wild still thing. here. It's, she's just like, I'm old now. Guess this is my life Well, now. she's like, oh, I'm going to go find Wizard Hell. I might be able to break the spell. But, like, she's not in any rush. She's yeah, she, just like, yeah. She very easily takes it in her stride. Yeah. And she's also very much an advocate for sometimes being old is better. You know? Not everything about youth is good. Sometimes you can, like, you can't always. Surf, old Sophie gives no fucks. She don't fuck around. She don't care. And she takes that back with her into her youth. But I don't think you always have the permission to do that unless you're an old person. Yeah, I think as you as you uh, get older, you definitely um, get you get given uh, more uh, more fucks to not give. Yeah. You give less fucks. You, but you keep you, a lot of fucks you, to you, yourself. You hoard a lot of fucks and you give because you give less fucks. <laughs> you give less out. <laughs> you, don't, you don't bestow them upon the world. You keep them to yourself. You have a better time for it. Um, I was the worldview of the film, at least, and to some degree the novel, is that the aesthetic is everything. It is everything. It is all about the vibe. The aesthetic. It is all about the vibe. I would argue that that's also like just a Studio Ghibli thing. It's yeah, like, we're gonna make a movie, but the aesthetic is everything. But the aesthetic is everything. Also, Studio Ghibli vibes also are very good. Spirit Away, great movie, so good. Apparently, that's why Christian Bale wanted to do. Like he said, I'll take any role in House Moving Castle because he saw Spirited Away, and wow. they're like, you can be Hal, and he was like, sweet. <laughs> I would also be like, sweet, love Hal. But yeah, the aesthetic is everything. So is the vibe. It's all about the whimsy and like pastels. The, the word magic. of the day. Yeah, whimsy. whimsy. We've said it a lot in this podcast, and I'm really sorry, but now that I've rediscovered it, it's just... I like, love rediscovering a yeah. word you haven't used in a while. Um, so my last philosophy and worldview is more of a personal one, but in my mind, heart, and soul, I want to be Wizard Howe. I want to be him so badly. I wish I wish I was him. Like, slightly less of a mess. But other than that, I'm, I'm all good Look, for taking all of it. The achievable, I think the way you can achieve this, like with, with, there's magic in what, but you start multiple businesses, <laughs> uh, constantly change hair color, which uh, I used to used do to that. You don't do that. I don't do, that I don't do no, because it's expensive. And uh, wear flamboyant clothing, which you do do from time to time. Yeah, so, yeah, you true. know what? You're, you're halfway that's there. True. Just start multiple businesses. Just and, start multiple uh, businesses. Cur- commit tax fraud. Uh. <laughs> commit tax fraud. <laughs> Have multiple identities under which I run my businesses. Yeah, yeah that sounds bad. <laughs> um, also, like, unlike Hal, I don't have cosmetic spells, so I have to pay to get my hair yeah, done. Yeah, it's a lot of effort. Yeah, have had pink hair, though, so I've done that. Have had really blonde hair, so I have done that. Have, haven't had black hair. 
but I have quite dark hair naturally. Like how? Oh, maybe we are the same. <laughs> um, so I don't have many recommendations for this week or this month. I do recommend reading Howl's Moving Castle by, by Diana Wynne-Jones if you haven't. It's like an afternoon read. It's like 300 pages. It's nothing, but it's so fun. It's just fun and nice and enjoyable. Whimsical. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I also recommend all Studio Ghibli films. I mean, I haven't seen The Wind Rises, which is their newest one, but I'm sure it's great. I personally love Spirit Away. Spirit Away and House Moving Castle are probably my two favorites, but I do really enjoy Pr- Princess Mononoke. I don't mind my neighbor Totoro. I haven't seen Ponyo and I never intend to. It seems crazy to me, <laughs> but I'm sure there are people out there who love Ponyo. Love in trying, this next one. In trying to find a recommendation of a book or a film that was even slightly in the same area or same feel as How's Moving Castle was really hard. I can't explain it, but I get you what get you're doing it. here. Yeah. yeah. So I recommend Stardust, both the, both the novel, so the novel by Neil Gaiman and the film. It's... It has similar content because it does deal with stars, but also it has a similar sort of whimsical fantasy to it. Um, and if you haven't read the novel, it's it's quite good. But the film is beautiful as well. So like live action though, so not animated. So different, different but similar. The only other thing I have to recommend is a book that I just finished, which is why it's on here because I just finished it. It's called Uprooted. It's by Naomi Novak. It is a fantasy novel and it also deals with witches and wizards, but it's more based in like a Slavic folklore. So like Ooh. Baba Yaga. Um, that's who it's yeah so um, it's more based on that sort of folklore but it is very good and it sort of deals in similar things so if you haven't read it it's very good and that's all my recommendations cool well uh thank you for coming today and teaching us all about the world of Howl's moving castle that's another second world ticked off the list and we'll jump back into our world for now until we come back next month with another one uh until then may all your bacon burn Nice. And please rate, review, and subscribe if you have time. And that. Wait, okay, I got a better one. (laughs) Rate, review, and subscribe or all your bacon will burn. (laughs) That is better. See ya. This has been a Spiky Trap Radio production. For more Spiky Trap Radio content, please head to spikytrap.com.